first time we're together in a while. Hey, fellas, how are you? This is this is really cool being you are, together. You are more handsome in person. I go. honestly forgot. Now, wait, who are you addressing that to so the audience knows? I'm staring right at you, guy. Thank you. Okay. I am more I am more handsome yeah. in person. Dan Nathan, what, are, what do you think about Dan in person, Danny? I mean, <laughs> he prefers- <It> looks good. <laughs> he, his, his jacket reminds me of Chris Farley in Tommy Boy, but the one he's been wearing. Wait, wait, around, wait. But first things first, guy. The kids call it IRL. So in real life, we've been living in the metaverse. Is that what that IRL thing? I yeah. thought that was what they put at the end of the the yeah. internet when you type in like a website to buy things on the line. No, so it's in real life. And Chris Farley, what movie was that? Because I didn't Tom, see it. Tommy Boy. How did you not see? It? You must have been cool back then in '94 when that movie came out. '94. I was eight years out of college, still at Drexel Burnham. No. No, that's incorrect. Drexel had gone bankrupt by yeah, then. Our group got bought. It probably was thanks to me. Our group got bought by AIG. So think about oh, where I one. worked. I worked for Drexel. Think about what happened in 90. Then I subsequently worked at AIG. And then think about that. How about Bearings? Uh, how was your stint at Bearings? No, it's interesting. That was Nick Nick Leeson, right? Was that is that a yep. good poll by me? That That's unbelievable. He so was wait, wait, a Bearings here's guy. Here's a question. Danny would have either been working at Drexel or been short <laughs> Drexel back then. Uh, good one point. of the two, right? Yep, like, 100%. Yeah. And guy, I assume there were no type of golden parachute or either of those places or we wouldn't be sitting in this no. room that's six feet high and three feet no. wide. But I'll tell you a funny story. So as during the Drexel bankruptcy, our trading group got bought by AIG. AIG Financial Products had started – few years earlier up in Stanford, and our group got bought during the bankruptcy. I guess it was April of 90 or 91, whatever that was. But I remember being in my boss's office. We all got sort of, I don't know what kind of checks they gave us, but I got a check for $20,000, which then was a lot of money. And he said, you better deposit it quickly. So I got in my car in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and I drove to the city to Citibank somewhere on Broadway on the Upper West Side, and I deposited my check. And I was the last person, not that anybody cares, I was the last person at Goldman Sachs not to have direct deposit. They called me into HR and said, this is unacceptable. You have to have direct deposit. That's that's my story. Love it. Sticking to it, but I, I am trying to stick it to it. And I came here with a tie-on. You made fun of me because that's just the, the way I rolled. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. All important consumer price index here. Were they all important? Did they really even? No, I think they were really important. I, I would listen, Danny. I'm interested in what you're thinking. I think they were really important. The fact that the market shrugs it off doesn't really mean all that much to me. These numbers are crazy. All right. So, what what other barometer are we focused on here? Because if the market is the lens in which the data is interpreted, we've seen rates go lower. And these two, we had one soft piece of data, jobs. We've had a slightly listen. Everyone's saying this is really hot. I'm going to say slightly hotter CPI inflation data. Rates are down, stocks are up. Yeah, I don't think it changes. People know there's inflation. The people that are buying the markets right now are in the Dan Nathan camp of transitory tantrum, and they're willing to live with that. And there's still not enough excuse to take money out of the market, I feel like, at this point. And so, you know, they're staying in. So interesting to me, though, not a major move, but the 210 spread. So for those out there, the two-year versus the 10-year has been coming down a little bit. It's at a pretty interesting inflection point. So, I'm, you know, like I talked about last week, could the market maybe be forecasting an actual slowdown in the economy as a result of some inflation? And then they know the Fed, which may never take their foot off of QE, comes back even in with more to stimulate? I don't know. 
but the market tends to portend. But that's a really important point right now. Okay, when you think about that, everyone's saying this is the to me this is the transitory tantrum. It's not in the markets, in, in the pundit class, it's economists, it's strategists, it's billionaire investors, it's some bank CEOs, right. that sort of thing. They're saying that the Fed has overstayed their welcome. They have to start raising rates. But what you just said, Danny, there is that if we are remember how obsessed we were in the years after the financial crisis about a double dip, and that kind of gave the Fed all of the cover that they needed to remain uh, zero interest rates in QE. But what you're saying here is that maybe the inflation causes the fear of a recession and therefore giving the Fed the cover. Right, exactly. And listen, until I see meme stocks fade away, there's still so much money in the market. If people are willing to take those type of chances on those type of stocks, and still, although the coins have gotten drilled, the no-name coins have started to get drilled, Main Street doesn't see that, or Wall Street doesn't see that as much as Main Street sees it. But there are holes, and listen, the earnings that are out there that are coming in right now for the first time we're seeing, whether it's not a March quarter, maybe it's an April quarter, off quarter, aren't great. And you're starting to see the impact like we saw in Campbell's Soup, and they're starting to see costs come across in every aspect of their business, in the cans and the shipping. And if you can't hide in soup, that staple is the number one thing. They always say guns and soup and all kinds of Is that what they say? I'm not Something sure what like they that. say. I will tell you, though, that Campbell's Soup with the little mini hamburgers in it, that was be- – when I was, like, living by myself yeah. in the dark days, I mean, that – I survived. Uh, sirloin burger, so Campbell's Soup. You weren't a ramen guy. You know, it's funny. Those Roman noodles, my son Guy loves these things. And we went to the supermarket. We went to the Acme recently, and the Acme by me is closing down. And he, we went to the Roman noodle aisle, and he said, we got to get, like, a box of these things. And I'm like, I looked at the price. I'm like, is this per little? He's like, no, that's for the entire box. I'm like, what is in this? Apparently, all it is air. is salt and it, yeah, and air. But he lives on the Roman noodles, so God bless Roman that kid. Noodles. The other thing Dan didn't want to mention is the fact that UPS came out during their investor day, didn't they? Guess what they're going to do? They're going to raise prices. Why are they going to raise prices? For obvious reasons. Everybody's raising prices. Now, I will tell you the other thing. Ask yourself this question, folks listening at home. Where would interest rates be if our geniuses at the Federal Reserve weren't buying $120 billion worth of shit every month for the last you know, year and a half, two years? That's really the question to me. When they stop, maybe they'll finally be the price discovery that Danny Moses talks about all the time. Right. And, and so I think that we talked about this last week, that they're going to let this corporate bond portfolio roll off. And so then the next thought would be, and Danny, this is right in your wheelhouse, what if they were to do the same? They were to start purchasing less mortgage-backed securities, that sort of thing. I mean, maybe they can start to taper in such a fashion, even if it's just little by little, that for those, it just gives them cover again with all the voices that are so loud out there about the things that they are buying. I actually think they'll announce a taper at some point. They'll wait to adjust for what, how big they want it to be. They'll say, oh, we're thinking about tapering. They'll watch what the market does. Now, if I was the Fed right now, I'd come out with a tenure at 145 and let it rip and just say, you know what? We're going to consider starting this taper process and see what happens. They don't have to do it, but they got to test the water. They got to test the water. And they have tried to test the water a number of times, in my opinion, with different Fed officials. I think it was Bullard that came out a couple months ago and said sort of the taper might line up with full vaccination by July. The market didn't particularly like that. They walked that back. Now, they've thrown a lot of things out there that they've subsequently walked back. We have a Fed meeting next week. And to your point, Danny, it's be interesting to see what they say if they're going to sort of put things out there with rates moving their way. It's just something to think about as we go into next week. So starting next week, I would call it the Oscar nominations begin for the Federal Reserve chairmanship because the Fed's next week, the dot plot's coming next week, and the next Fed meeting's not until either late July or early August. I'm guessing it's early August, and then they go to 
where they go Mount Rushmore. Jackson Hole, which I'm sure you've been yeah. to a number of times. Never been to Jackson Hole. But now, like, he's in a no-win situation, potentially, pal. If he tapers now and says something the market sells off, he'll get blamed. If he doesn't do it, inflation runs wild. Mm-hmm. He's going to err on the side of being, in my opinion, nominated again for that post. But there's people, right. Brainerd's at his, at his heels, I believe. Um, we already talked about Summers at his heels. There's a dozen at, at dozen. his heels. And so let's talk about this, though. I mean, Janet Yellen's at his heels, apparently. I think she, she keeps, is the Fed chairman. I mean, yeah. she keeps talking about interest rates. I yeah. mean, what is she doing, right. Dan? G- gentlemen, I feel like I'm in a buzzsaw here between the two of you guys. Remember the scene in Rocky Three? Of course you do. I'm afraid. Yeah. yeah. Remember when sure. and Adrian, they're on the beach, and he just can't get his mojo going. And she's and I pictured that was yelling in Powell. What is it? I'm afraid. He's afraid who's, to taper. Who's his Apollo Creed? That's what I want to know. Carl Weathers? Oh, who is his Apollo Creed? Yeah. Larry Summers, maybe. Okay. Maybe. Anyway, okay. go ahead. So, so I'm I guess, afraid. I, yeah. I guess my point is it's, it's funny. Yields are going in a way that the narrative that's growing is exact opposite. And here's the thing that we all know about markets. We've been doing this long. When everybody becomes convinced of something that's going to happen, the opposite happens. That's what's going on with yields right now. So here's the question. The S&P 500, it's been literally, it feels like every time we look up. It's 4,200, right? 4,200, 4,200. So here we are. We're at an all-time high here. Where would the market go if next week on this, it, maybe the dots, Danny, tell you something different and say, okay, they have to start tapering, that sort of thing. So at some point, the equity market has to react, doesn't it? Because we've only had about three peak to trough declines of about four, four and a half percent or so this year. The stock market's up 12, 13 percent or something like that. Where does the S&P 500 go if they do surprise and, and intimate that they're going to taper? Well, I think it's going to 3,700 in a straight line, but I'm going to be wrong by saying that. What I'll tell you is this: everything you're talking about speaks to why passive investing is so powerful because passive investing money doesn't care about any of the things we're saying or anybody else is saying, quite frankly, because the money just flows in regardless of what's happening. And that's great on the way in. It's really bad on the way out. And on the way out, I got to tell you something, easy getting in. It's like that whole Roach Motel thing. It's a real pain in the ass to get out. And that's going to be the trick. And I'm not sure the market can pull it off, Danny. The market's so resilient. It really shocks me to the point where even when Bitcoin trades, and Dan, you've been right on this, I keep thinking Bitcoin trading off even for a period of a day or two will have an impact on equities. And it just doesn't. I think that Bitcoin is being held, like we talked about before, a lot of strong hands are in it, and they're in it for the long haul, it appears. And yes, you get near-term volatility, but it doesn't seem to shake the equity market. And that tells me one of two things. Either retail is becoming less and less a component of Bitcoin, potentially, or they're in other things in trading these meme stocks. But the market always is efficient. And I hope the coronavirus does not come back, and I hope that all these vaccines are going to work against all these different type of variants. But you're seeing an uptick in Europe. You're seeing an uptick in China. Nothing major. I don't know if it's in the vaccinated population or not, but you are seeing countries go different levels now backwards a little bit. And maybe the 10-year also is projecting that you cannot stop any type of stimulus if international commerce slows down at all. So that was the last thing I would add. Maybe the market's telling us that we're not paying close enough attention to. The other thing we should mention before we move to Dan Nathan's views on technology, which you're so astute at, is the fact that during this week, the talks about infrastructure broke down. And I think a big move in the bond market was on, the move in the bond market was on the back of that. A lot of people haven't talked about, but it's absolutely because so much of this inflation narrative was predicated on that going through, regardless of the number they're going to throw out there. So much of the weaker dollar narrative is on the back of that. That seemingly, at least for now, 
is sort of been shelved. Yeah, it's funny, though. Doesn't it remind you of last year when we had these fits and starts about further fiscal stimulus and then infrastructure that might have been bipartisan? And we had literally the market was reacting to that, the stock market. So I'm not so certain there was a whole heck of a lot built in to the stock market right now. So you're just saying rates, and I get that, because in a way, that's just kind of further stimulus in you. But wouldn't you have thought that that would have been another leg for stock? So after we got this hot inflation data today, I think when I'm looking at the stock market, I see some areas in the market. We see banks down. We see, surprisingly, home building yeah. down. You know what I mean? Like That's pretty interesting. But we're seeing tech stocks outperform the broad market, which is interesting because they've really underperformed. And one of the, the, I guess, the negative or the bearish narratives for tech stocks was higher rates was going to be bearish for them. So if they were to take the lead again, if you're going to see some of the mega cap techs, you're going to see some of these high growth, high valuation names that have gotten hit really hard start to outperform a little bit, it could be a wild, hot summer, man, if that's what's going to happen. Tech stocks have one thing that all the other businesses don't, and that's percentage of employment as a percentage of your cost of labor. So a lot of SaaS businesses. So you can stick your money in those stocks right now and not worry about the rising wage inflation and how it impacts that particular company. I think that's part of the rotation yeah. going on. Yeah, and we might have mentioned this. We had Gavin Baker from Atreides Management jump on a Twitter spaces that we did a week ago, and he wrote a great blog post saying that secular growth names are starting to look more interesting to him. So think about what happened is as soon as we saw what the vaccines could do, we saw a lot of money, at least in the stock market, move into very GDP sensitive. And that makes total sense, right? Cyclicals, industrials, energy-related sort of names. But now when we've seen so many of these secular growth names have gotten destroyed, down 30, 40, 50%. He's saying this is where you want to move back into some of these recurring revenue models, to your point. And the rate play is really important in that. So I think that's worth keeping an eye. I just want to say one thing. It's a really interesting thing going on here. We just talked about the S&P breaking out here. We talked about the outperformance in the NASDAQ. I look at my screens and I have like a little patchwork. I like to see by sectors and everything like that. I see a lot of really bad action under the hood. I see this rotation into some of these tech stocks that are actually showing the fact that the market's up here. But I I'm looking at home builders. I'm looking at Toll Brothers down nearly 5%. Danny, don't you think home builders should be up in a declining rate environment, that sort of thing? I'm seeing banks come in. I'm seeing some industrials. I'm seeing the airlines and the cruise lines down. I just think it's a really interesting setup here because, again, we've only identified the one thing that we think will take the market down right now, which would be the Fed changing course on their rate policy or on their quantitative easing. And that doesn't just seem particularly likely anytime soon, correct? Until we get to Jackson Hole in late August. Correct. You're actually, like I said, I think you're going to start to see earnings impact. You're starting to see now from higher costs. Why would builders be down? They can't get product anymore. Lumber's backordered and lumber's expensive. And at some point they're going to get squeezed if they can't pass that on to some prices of homes have gone high. Maybe there's a limit here. It's certainly not because rates are moving. Earlier in the week, Danny, I can't remember who the investment house was. They made a a negative call on Micron, on DRAM pricing, and on PC demand. And that's just not something that anybody has been pricing in in this market. Is that because of the chip shortage? But it could be. But but when then you say PC demand and and weak DRAM pricing, that's looking forward. You know know what I mean? So to me, I think we have a lot of backwards-looking data. The UPS thing that Guy just brought up, I think it's super curious. I think that all we've been talking about is how much pricing power that they have. 
have. But sooner or later, then you get to a point where, okay, maybe demand if demand for PCs slows down. You know who sends those from China, who ships all the UPS ships them. You know what I'm saying? So then I'm looking at deer and cat rolling over. I think deer's down like 14% from its very recent highs. Cat down is getting slayed today. So there's a lot of like things under the hood as far as the stock market's concerned that don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense and starting to look very poor from a technical standpoint. Yeah, and before we get to Liz Young, the other thing that's really standing out and glaring is the fact that I think for the first time in history, S&P market cap is 200% of GDP, two, twice of GDP. So unless GDP explodes over the next couple of months, you're talking about numbers that are absolutely unsustainable. One other thing I would watch for right now, I haven't been tracking it, Dan, is the in- corporate insider selling. Is it picking up or not? I think this is going to be a really interesting time because the window when the window opens for selling post a quarter, et cetera, I keep an eye on that. And that's another thing that Ginsler made a comment that he's going after these 10 B51 plans. And you made me think of it because it was Intel in 2017, the CEO that sold all of his stock weeks before the chip had a malfunction in it. And it was never even investigated, but it was a 10 B51. So he was protected. I'll rot at a different time on 10 B51. Please. That's it for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to have Liz Young on in a few minutes to talk about this. She's from SoFi. SoFi is a really cool company, by the way. We're excited to have Liz on. She's been on CNBC a number of times. I think she has been part of the investment committee, right, Dan, for the halftime report. No doubt. Which about I know it. you're a huge fan of. And so I'm interested to hear her thoughts on this. But, you know, quickly, again, there's just so many cross currents here and there's so many things to be aware of. Amazon, which is probably, in my opinion, one of the most important stocks in the market. I mean, you've made this point a number of times, Dan. This stock has gone effectively nowhere since July of last year. I mean, it's been sideways in a range. You had that 3,500 move last September, the subsequent move last earnings release to 3,550 seemingly failed sort of dead in the water. There are a lot of people that think this is getting poised to break out, but you wonder how important is Amazon for the broader market? I think it's really important. We're going to find out. Not just the broader market, the economy. This company employs 1.2 million people. So when we talk about wage inflation, I mean, they were getting in front of that kind of minimum wage discussion. We know that there's been some pressure to unionize, which actually, I think we covered this. Was this down in Alabama, Danny? We were talking about it maybe a month ago. There was, and the union effort actually failed. So this, this is a company that is already paying reasonably high wages. They have health care. They have a bunch of other stuff here. But 1.2 million Americans, they've hired hundreds of thousands of Americans during the last year or so. So I do think it's fairly interesting, like you say, Guy, that the stock has been stuck in a range for nine months because, again, their margins are probably going to be impacted. The other things these companies going to have to start to hire is going to be cybersecurity experts or firms. Well, think about what's happened over the last six to nine months. And now you're starting to hear about it in earnest. I know you know this fact story pretty well, Dan Nathan. But my sense is for every company that comes out and you hear about, there are probably 10, 15, 20 that you don't. And this is absolutely a problem, going to hurt margins. And you really wonder, at least I've wondered out loud and I've written about it, when do these start attacking our banking system, This, you know, the electrical grid, things we talk about that seemingly the market's impervious to? I think that's next. And I think that could be, and I'll use the word by choice, I think they'll be catastrophic for the broader market. Well, I think it's a given now that whatever could be attacked will be attacked if they want to attack it, right? I mean, so I don't actually think that any of the software that they can put in and they need to do it because they have to protect their shareholders, protect their employees. But come on, these guys are the most sophisticated internet pirates in the world and they'll find a way to get their way in. So it's scary. I mean, it's scary. You can shut down a grid. It's scary. You could shut down the FAA. You can't think of something that doesn't operate in the technical, either in the cloud or something yeah. where it is vulnerable. And Right now, I'm working with some companies that are going through IPO process, things like that. 
the number one thing now is CISO, cybersecurity officer that's going to come on board. I mean, that's like a number used to be make sure you have a good CFO and general counsel. Now you need a CISO. Yeah, well, it's it's pretty interesting. Colonial Pipeline CEO was on the Hill this week, and that was one of these really mission critical for our economy. And, you know, they paid that ransom where they do, like you say, Danny, have a fiduciary responsibility. We've been talking about this earlier in the week on Fast Money. You know, for 20 years, our country's operated with this kind of notion that we don't negotiate with terrorists. But when you're a company and you have, like, you know, the, you're that integral to the running of the economy, you kind of have to do it. I, I do think, to your point, though, about some of this, cybersecurity, I mean, they were using single factor authentication. You know what I mean? Like that's pretty embarrassing. So when you think about companies that have all time highs, gross margins, the spend is going to be continual there. The last point I'll just make is that on Thursday, EA, Electronic Arts announced that they had a hack and it wasn't just customer information, but it was also source code for some of the products. This is like really serious stuff. It's coming hot and heavy here. And I guess big parts of the internet went out. You were talking about Fastly. So this is a content distribution network. We have lots of single points of failure here in our economy, and our new cyber economy here, and we better get our act together. Watch what happens. All these companies that are trying to get their employees actually back in the office are going to use this also as an excuse. Because I know these hacks that we're talking about have been on a major level of a grid and not individuals, but you don't know where those hacks started. It's someone's home. So you can't tell me that all these people working at home have the best cybersecurity. So I think you're going to hear companies that are concerned about people working from home and use that as an excuse to get them back in the office because it's safer. No, that's fair. And it's going to be interesting to see. But I, I got to tell you something. You'd think about what happened when the pipeline was shut down. The people wait, the gas lines that people were waiting on. I mean, it's crazy. People filling up trash bags with gasoline. I mean, it's we like to think we're the civilized society. We live on the head of the pin in terms of anarchy. And God forbid something major happen or larger scale I mean, again, I'll use the word for the second time, catastrophic, not only for society, but then subsequently for our markets. And this is inevitable to me. We talk about it all the time. It's not if it's going to happen. It's just a question of when. Yet the market doesn't price it in. The market doesn't care. The other thing we have to talk about is the fact that these memes, what do they call those things? Memes. Yeah. Yeah, what is you got to help me out with that? What is a meme stock? I know people try to define it. They don't do a particularly good job because I consider myself relatively intelligent. I don't understand, but my sense is AMC is one of those meme stocks. Obviously, GameStop. There are a number of stocks that sort of fall under that criteria. They're all back on their horses now, and I'm telling you, folks listening. I'm all for the Reddit crowd, the Wall Street Bets crowd. I've said it on this podcast. I've said it on the show. These guys and gals understand convexity, options. Oh, they don't. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. They absolutely do. do. I mean, I understand what you're saying, Guy, but they understood when GameStop was this tiny market cap and it was compressed. It was down 90%. It was trading low single digits. And a couple very smart people, Michael Burry was one of them, Mm -hmm. a handful of others, they were like, listen, this is an asymmetric opportunity opportunity here, right? It can go to zero or it can go to the moon. I don't think any of these people understood the power of the collusion that you could do on the dark web on on Reddit. And and so they're playing it again and again. But I'm just saying, as we're talking here on Thursday, GameStop is down 30% almost, Guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a considerable move on that market cap. AMC is down 
13%. I think this thing is about to die. It also brings me back to a lot of these altcoins. You can hodl, you can want things to go to the moon, you can collaborate, you can feel good about the memes on the internet and feel good about the things that you own. But ultimately, sooner or later, you may have a margin call, you may have to pay your rent, you may have to go back into the office and not have all the time to stick on the web and on Robinhood, that sort of thing. When you suffer massive losses, which a lot of people are doing in these situations, you, you leave the market. That's what we learned after the dot-com implosion 20 years ago, and that's what we learned after the financial crisis. So I think we're still in the game, but we're probably in late innings. Let me take both of those comments and put them together. So where Guy is correct is that there are institutional investors, long guys, hedge funds, that are watching what's going on on those boards. Who knows? Maybe even planting some stuff on those boards, knowing Mm -hmm. who's vulnerable and who's not. But when you start to move in to a Wendy's or a traditional thing where you can actually value, we've talked about this before, when memes go into that world, you run the risk of value investors that are sitting there that don't hold. They're not momentum people. They know that there's that is going to be a massive type of reversion with these meme with I'm saying meme yeah, now. Well, You're killing me, guy. Right? With with the meme stocks that are out there, great. They should all be raising as much capital as they can, but that does not change their business plan. Thank these you. Valuations, there is no justification at all. You know what they're going to blame? We're going to talk about it in a minute. They'll blame shorts because that's what they do. How about blaming themselves for buying these stocks on the way up? For what reason? Because it's popular to do so? Because there's momentum? This is great? There is no place to buy these stocks on the way down. When when they, There is a place, but it's nowhere near here. And who knows when it ends? Good for GameStop for saying they're going to raise capital up here. Not only raise capital, but bring in two new executives. And one of the big story was the new CEO like three or four months ago. So, Danny, when you see that they bring in two guys, I have no idea who these people are from Amazon. They might be like the next coming of Jeff Bezos for all we know. But the fact that this stock is down 27% after that announcement, what does that say to you about this trade, about the ability for investors to value these companies? Because to me, you know, you can value GameStop. I mean, you can value GameStop. It's disconnected from all the fundamentals here. I mean, what does that say to you? Well, let me put this out there for a second. If you're a hedge fund, I think you have to absolutely employ someone to be in these chat rooms. As a matter of fact, I'm sure that they have people that have infiltrated these chat rooms to do their bidding for them. And I've said a number of times, who's the Mel Gibson? Who's the Braveheart in this whole thing? These Reddit guys and gals, they're the pawns. A lot of them might be doing very well. They're the pawns in a much bigger game. And you wonder who's really driving the bus here. And again, I'll say it. Most of these people that have blown up, these hedge funds that have blown up, not because they're short single stocks, it's because they have huge derivative levered positions that they were able to put on through whatever investment bank out there. That, to me, is a real risk to the system. And that, Danny, speaks to market structure. I would say this. What does the year 1934 mean to you guys? Other than the year that I was born. I would say I teed you up for that one. Yeah. The Securities Act was a big one in 1934 following the great crisis of 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 1929. A couple things were in there. They had a couple of rules that that went in place. I'm going to talk about a couple things. So Ginsler, again, the SEC is awakening here, made a comment at a conference yesterday that he's going to be reviewing stock market structure. That's all he has to say to send Virtue stock down 8%. He basically wants to make sure that incentives are aligned in the broker-dealer community, the market maker community. Obviously, they're not. And the thing he said that was most important was, is price improvement actually price improvement? And when you bring that up, that directly begs the question, is it? How is it measured? And we all know how it's measured. The market makers make what they believe and show you as price improvement, but it's measured off of a, quote, 
different exchange, if you want to call it, because it's off exchange. But I think what we need to do, maybe there's some first-time listeners, Dan, Nathan. I don't know. Maybe they just stumbled upon on the tape. What is those, when you put letters together, what is that, like an anagram or, or something? Or an acronym. An acronym. That's right, the acronym, right? And the acronym ROT, R-O-T-T, is rip off the tape. You know, you got to rip that freaking Band-Aid off. Well, Danny's going to rip off the tape right now. Yeah, so everybody's ripping on shorts, right? Oh, naked shorts and no guy. It's not when you're not dressed and so forth. But naked shorting is illegal. Everyone knows it. And what is naked shorting? Naked shorting is when you don't secure a borrow, according to the regulation of reg show, and you go and sell stock short without locating it. The only time you get a free pass at that is if you're a market maker, which kind of goes back to comments from the SEC, that you're providing a bona fide market. So bit off. So here's my point. If you're the buyer of these meme stocks to a degree, who's the seller? You go, there's not a long, lot of long sellers out there, but you want to buy stock, guess who you're buying it from? Probably, maybe a short seller, or maybe the short seller is naked because he's providing you a market. So to the mean people that are long the stock, you wouldn't be able to own it unless this is going on. It doesn't make it right. I'm just saying pick your poison on who you want to go after. So shorting falls under this reg show thing, which the SEC modified at reg show in 2007, and it got rid of the uptick rule, and that reinstated it in 2010. When you got rid of the uptick rule, by the way, bad time to get rid of the uptick rule in 2007, right before the financial crisis, means you can short while the stock is actually on a downtick, so when, it, when it's going down. They got rid of that. They reinstated it in 2010, and it, it comes in play only when stocks are down more than 10% in a day. So some of these meme stocks will have the uptick rule. You'll see it come across. Uptick rule, in effect, we'd see it come across. But- Shorts have had a huge role, what I want to talk about, in market functionality. They're needed by bondholders. So if you own a company that has debt, you want debt holders to be able to go short the stock. That's their harp. That's how they protect themselves. So that's one thing. And without that, the debt markets would be much less liquid. Shorts are eventual buyers of a stock. Longs aren't eventual buyers of stock. They already own it. So on the way down, it's built up demand, barring bankruptcy. And that should be seen as eventual, you know, as a buyer of the company. And longs can buy on margin, but that's okay because they can borrow and buy on margin. And when that stock goes down, they get margin called. I just know what's going to happen when these meme stocks, maybe in the next 20 minutes, maybe tomorrow, get drilled. They're going to blame the shorts. How are they going to blame the shorts when they were the ones that were driving these stocks up? So no one should be abusive on the long or the short side. But shorts play a major role in market and price discovery. And like I always said, your favorite long, you should go find a short and see what the story is. And your favorite short, go find the person that loves it the most. And that's it. Could not agree more. I mean, shorts have pointed out throughout history some of these flawed companies that people overlook. I mean, they play a vital role in the market. And to your point, they're sometimes the buyer of last resort. They're sort of the speed bump on the way down. You take them out of the equation, and this market structure that we started this with sort of goes to shit. And yes, I chose to use that word. Now, just ask one other question. If you think about this. Why should short sellers be penalized by having to sell on an uptick when if you want to buy something, you could bid it to, in, you know, basically to infinity? It makes no sense to take me. Take it and bid it. Guys. Take it and take bid it. it. And bid. But you can't do that. You can't take it and sell it on the way down. It really doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. By the way, you said something. I was just on a plane and I watched the movie Wall Street again. Great movie. Okay, great movie. Oliver Stone's fantastic, except he made a major mistake in this movie. Rarely can you find, you know, you find the errors like in Well, Hoosiers. before you tell the major mistake, you know the is? major mistake was not he should have had me in the cast because I would have crushed There were a lot it. of Wall Street extras in there. So the thing opens up, it says 1985. That's what it says. And they're introducing Gecko, kind of like, oh, this Gecko, oh, this guy's a scumbag. He was shorting space shuttle stocks when it blew up. Challenger blew up in January 1986. Okay. Oh. So if Oliver Stone, if you're listening, you should remake the movie, put Guy in it, and fix that because that's a. Major mistake. He would be horrified if he, he, he remade like, the movie. He put James Brolin in it, who's amazing. He put Anthony Scaramucci in it, is uh, who he put in it. We should get Scaramucci on this podcast. Have- that would be fun. When we come back, 
Liz Young from SoFi. Liz Young is SoFi's head of investment strategy, responsible for providing economic and market insights to a variety of audiences. Prior to joining SoFi, Liz was the director of market strategy at BNY Mellon Investment Management, where she formulated and delivered views on macroeconomic themes and their effects on capital markets. Early in her career, Liz held analyst roles at Robert W. Baird and BMO Global Asset Management. She has more than 15 years of industry experience. Liz, welcome to On The Tape. So Liz, it's wonderful to have you join us. So I'm going to say a name to you. If you don't know it, just say, Guy, I don't know what you're talking about. Russell Ziski. Do you know that name? Yes or no? No, I don't know what you're talking about. No, you don't. Just say, if you don't know it, just say no. And the, I bring that up because one of the great lines in movie history is, I once got my ass kicked in Wisconsin. That's from <laughs> Russell Ziski and Stripes. You're from Wisconsin, as we mentioned. Talk to me about growing up there. I got to believe you're a huge Packer fan. You see what's going on with Aaron Rodgers. You're all pissed off. Give me a little taste of growing up in Wisconsin, the heartland. The heartland. Yeah, I mean, obviously a Packer fan. That's an oath that I think every newborn baby takes before they leave the hospital. I'll be a Packer fan for life. I'll never cheer for another football team for as long as I live. The Aaron Rodgers thing, you know, I'm not going to opine on it. I think us as Packer fans are still trying to get over when Favre went to the Jets and then he went to the Vikings. We're not over that yet. So I really hope that they figure it out with Rodgers. It's not over till it's over. Well, talk to me about, though, that obviously the move from the Midwest to the industry that you started out here on the East Coast. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. How did you make that transition? Because it is a bit of a culture shock if you've never been out here, specifically if you've never worked in this industry, because when you started, it was a bit rough and tumble, as I'm sure you can speak to. Yeah. You know, it's surprising. I was thinking about it before I came on. This is my 17th year in the industry. I didn't even know I was that old, but I feel old just saying that out loud. And I started in the industry in Wisconsin, which clearly not the financial mecca of the world, but I started there and I spent the first 11 years of my career there. And, you know, you have a few pivotal points in your career. I think I've had three pivotal points in my career so far. The first one was when I was still there and I got my first job really in the investments industry. And it was for the chief market strategist in the investment management division at a bank. And I was I was working at the bank in the trust department at the time. And for whatever reason, he hired me. He took a chance on me. I was 27 years old. I didn't know up from down. I didn't know left from right. I didn't know what I was doing. And he encouraged me to start the CFA program. He taught me everything he knew in that two-year period about investments, about the market, about economics, about how asset management worked. And I just was the sponge. And that lit the fire in me. And he was also the CNBC face of the firm. So it gave me this pipe dream of, I want to do that someday. And I had this kind of in the back of my mind as I went through it. And I stayed in Wisconsin for a while longer and eventually hit another pivotal point in my career. I had been an analyst then by that point, six years. And I realized that I was sitting at my desk as an analyst and just hoping for the phone to ring because I wanted to talk to people. I didn't want to sit at my desk and just be in spreadsheets and write all day long. And and I learned a lot being an analyst, but I wanted to talk and I wanted to leave Wisconsin. So uh, I started to put the feelers out there and met somebody else that took a chance on me and said, you know what, I'm building a team in New York at the Bank of New York, and I'd like to bring you on as my first external strategist. So they picked me up out of Milwaukee and plopped me down in Manhattan and said, okay, sink or swim, here you go. 
So, Liz, it sounds like you had a great mentor in Wisconsin. I mean, how did that translate when you got to New York? You all of a sudden realized that the business is not just national, but it's international. And Bank of New York, one of the oldest financial institutions in the world, and you're working in this big strategy team. Did you just get a sense that the markets were a lot bigger than you had thought prior? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my head was spinning. I I landed in Manhattan. I, I knew zero people. All I had was that job, and it was a job that it challenged me on a daily basis. I spent the better part of six years on the road, and and when I say on the road, I mean wheels up every week. I made Diamond on Delta without a SkyMiles credit card. I actually flew every single one of those miles, and I spent time coast to coast speaking at every conference and meeting any financial advisor you could imagine. I spoke at every breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I gave probably two to three presentations a day, informal presentations in between those. And it was a grind. And I learned a lot, not only about international investing, but just the differences among clients across the country. Clients in New York are very different from clients in Houston, Texas. And it taught me a lot about how to communicate properly, taught me a lot about the fact that you can know a lot of stuff in your head, but you don't have to tell everybody all that stuff. You just have to distill it down into what are the interesting tidbits, what are the digestible nuggets. And it teaches you how to connect with investors, and it teaches you how to stay relevant with investors, and you understand what everybody's questions are. So yeah, I mean, it was a lot to learn, and it was six years of a grind, and and I really embraced the grind. It's interesting. You mentioned mentorship. I know how important that is to you. The world has changed significantly, not over the last 30-something years when I started, but over the last few years, where I think people might be a bit guarded in terms of mentorship for a number of different reasons, which we don't need to get into. How important was that mentorship for you? And obviously now you're probably a mentor to people. You don't even realize how much of an impact you think you're making on the lives of others. I hope I'm making an impact on the lives of others. And we'll probably get into this later. It's part of the reason I moved over to SoFi was to make that impact. But mentorship is not something, I mean, if there's young professionals out there listening to this, mentorship is not something you should ever ignore. And I would encourage people to seek out mentors and Even females in the industry, I think a lot of times the assumption is that if you're a woman in investment management or a woman in finance, you should find another female mentor. And that might be true. And and I have a couple female mentors who I adore, and, and they've been very instrumental in giving me guidance. But a lot of the opportunities that I've gotten and a lot of the guidance that I've gotten that's been really, really valuable along the way, and the first people that I call when I need that guidance are men. And I've had some amazing male mentors in my career. I've had mentors that have been in the business over 40 years, and I've had mentors that have been in the business only 10 years. And I've actually made some new mentors at CNBC as well, and that's something that I'll forever cherish. So Mentorship is critical. I would not be where I am today without it. Talk to us a little bit about CNBC. I think that Guy and I both got to know you from seeing you on the air. You are a tremendous voice. Obviously, you have a a macro focus here. For Guy and myself being contributors at CNBC for over a decade each, we've gotten to meet so many amazing people, not just the people at CNBC, but just so many market participants, so many people for years that we had seen up on the screen or seen at conferences, that sort of thing. Tell us a little bit about that experience. 
I'll take you through the the first time I was ever on. And I was working at the Bank of New York. The PR team wanted to expand our reach and they wanted to push some people out into media. And I said, sure, you, you can start to push me out, but start me small. I'm not ready for CNBC yet. I want to do some of the smaller stuff first and get all this practice in. And they said, Liz, if, if we wait until you tell us you're ready, we're going to wait forever. So you're just going to do it. And they started pushing me out. And my first appearance was November of 2018. I remember it like yesterday. It was Power Lunch. And one Mr. Scott Wapner was actually filling in as a host that day. And he ran my segment. I was so nervous, I could hardly see straight. There was one other guest on. I even remember what I was wearing. I remember everything about it. And we met that day. And he supported me literally from day one. Shortly thereafter, they asked me to be on Halftime Report. And I went on Halftime Report the first time, again, terrified. I mean, I probably didn't sleep for the first four months of doing CNBC. But I went on Halftime Report. I was terrified because the the show was set up to be a debate. And I was familiar with the format. And all the other panelists had been doing this for years. And I thought, they're going to eat me alive. And I was so scared. And I went on. And I honestly don't remember much about that appearance. (laughs) I think I blacked out from nerves. But it must have gone okay because they kept asking me to come back. And I kept showing up at the studio. So over time, I built a lot of comfort around it. And I built relationships with the other guests. And I I built a relationship with Scott. And I love doing it. And I look up to all the other panelists. I, I learn from them every single time I'm on the show. And it's been an amazing experience. It's been an amazing experience for me, for me as well. It's interesting, you know, in terms of being terrified, we started doing Fast Money as a segment in 2006, if you can believe it or not. It was an eight-minute segment a couple times a week, and we would show up in Englewood Cliffs, and it was terrifying for sure. And then the world started to sort of melt down just as we started our show as a nightly one-hour show. And there were nights where I was absolutely, well, I won't say exactly what, because proper decorum prohibits, in my pants about that night's performance or that night's show. But what I'll tell you is you learn pretty quickly. And what I tell people, you want to be the voice that people turn the volume up for. And I introduced you at a podcast we did a while back. I said, there's a great Led Zeppelin song off their last studio album, In Through the Outdoor. The name of the song is All My Love. And one of the lyrics is, one voice is clear above the din. And you are one of those voices. Just talk about the preparation that's needed to go into those segments, because You have so much you want to say with so little time to say it. How difficult a transition has that been? Yeah, that's actually a really good setup. You get used to being a public speaker. And and like I mentioned before, on the road, I was used to having 30 to 45 minutes to get my message out. And I was the only person talking. And you could really get through some complex topics doing that. And I often had slides or at least something that I could show people to illustrate a topic even more. And then you start doing media and you write this whole list of talking points, it turns out you've got about 90 seconds to get that out. And I learned very quickly that you never get it all out. And you really have to figure out, okay, what do I absolutely need to say today? And there were a couple times I remember getting a point out, but not finishing my point and wishing that I had been more thorough about it or wishing that I had tried to get more out so that it made more sense or so that I could really get to the end statement. And that that also is a grind, right? That's also a grind to figure out how do you take 45 minutes worth of material and make it meaningful and then get it to a point where you finish the show and you're proud of what you did. And I don't know that I that I really walked off of a set and felt like 
I'm really proud of what I did today. I'm, I really feel good about that. I think that probably took me a year. I had this experience also. I like to organize my thoughts. You know that you have a lot to say, not a lot of time to say it, and you want to get the most important stuff, the stuff that you're most convicted on. So I started seeing, I learned about your job switch to SoFi earlier in the year because I started seeing you blogging and tweeting more and, and you have a concise blog and 280 characters and maybe a couple threads. And is that kind of playing a little bit into this new role here because we know that SoFi is very focused on a millennial investor. We know that they probably are not digesting content the way, let's say, we do, that sort of thing, maybe the long form stuff. Tell us a little bit about that transition. SoFi, obviously a really exciting company, just went public via a SPAC. Anthony Noto, the CEO, is somebody who is very familiar to CNBC audiences. And um, as Guy would say, I'm just going to use your term, Guy, a stud uh, right here. So <laughs> Noto's a stud. No, he's an absolute stud. Goldman guy, West Point, total stud. Yeah, well, so I, I was just kind of channeling my guy Adami here. This is a real big transition for you, right? From back in New York to SoFi. Tell us about it because you're speaking to a, an entirely different audience that you have for the last 16 or 17 years. Yeah, I mean, entirely different audience. And not only that, not just a transition from BNY Mellon, a transition career-wise for me. I mean, this is the fourth company that I've worked for in my career, and it's the first one that's less than 100 years old. So I was coming from super traditional, well-established, old kind of mentality companies, and I get thrown into, I'm providing investment content, and I'm, I'm an investment voice, but I'm at a tech company, and that is a totally different world. Part of the reason that I was really excited to join is because it is a new audience, and it's the audience that's been growing. Their force has been growing for the last 12 months, and they've proven to us in many different ways. I don't want to get into the whole meme stock thing, but they've proven to us in many different ways that they're here and they're a force to be reckoned with. And one of the things that I did a lot in my last role was communicate with financial advisors, but occasionally I got to communicate with the end client. And it was so much more fulfilling to give those presentations and to be able to teach people about investing and to let them ask the questions that they had that maybe they had been afraid to ask before and to get them to a place where they understood what it meant to allocate a portfolio a certain way and, and what risks were and what opportunities were and how to look at the world from a different lens. And one of the things that I think is challenging to people like us, if we're trained as fundamental long-term investors, you look at some of the things that happen in the market and the things that have happened over the last 12 months and, and our brains kind of short circuit over that because that's not how it's supposed to work or that's not how it's, it's always worked before and that's not what I learned in school and it's not what I learned in a book. It doesn't have to be that way all the time. And, and I think just opening up to different possibilities is something that every investor can grow from. So SoFi gives me the chance to be direct to consumer to have an impact on people's investing experiences and on their education. And the whole mission of the brand is to help people get their money right. So we're talking about spending, we're talking about saving, we're talking about borrowing, and we're definitely talking about investing. It's fascinating. And always when people look at others jumping ship or leaving one firm for another firm, they always assume it was a financial thing. And money's always got something to do with it. I understand that. But you know what else has a lot to do with it? culture. And I'm sure you've had a lot of opportunities over the year, but you made a decision to leave a great job to go to SoFi. Can you speak to the culture that you left, but more importantly, the culture you're joining now? Yeah. Well, you go from a really, really big firm to a firm that is 
definitely not even near that size. I think I think my last firm had 50,000 employees and SoFi has just over 2,000. So the size alone, I, I used to say a lot, it's really difficult to redirect the Titanic. It takes a long time to redirect the Titanic. And that's what a lot of those big institutions end up facing, that if you want to try to do something that's cutting edge, it's difficult because you have to get through a lot of different parts of red tape. You have to you have to get a lot of people on board for that. You come to a company like SoFi that is on the cutting edge, literally on the cutting edge and blazing its own path. And you get empowered. And, and literally the job was as advertised to me through the interview process. You get empowered to take risks, to be gritty about it, to try new things and to just make stuff happen. So it's been a really enlightening experience. It's a culture that's surrounded with other people who have a similar mindset. It's a very motivated culture. You mentioned Anthony. Anthony is a very motivated guy. He's a very motivating guy. And it's great to be in a culture where everybody is working towards the same goal. All right, let's talk markets here. Let's turn this into a little fast money because we saw you on CNBC this week. I read your tweets. I read your blog. You are an excellent strategist in thinking about your mission at SoFi in a way in the audience that you have there. You're helping these people, like you said. You're helping them think about investments holistically. So we know that a lot of investors are introduced to the markets through individual stocks. A lot of investors today are introduced through crypto, Right. I mean, there's there's so many different products that are kind of capturing different or younger investors imaginations. How do you think about that? Because I listen to you and you have views on inflation and on rates and on the broad market indices. But do you think about a lot of these other inputs as far as sentiment and how money is flowing into SPACs or how they're flowing into recent IPOs or crypto, that sort of thing? And let's let's talk about it, because right now there's some weird stuff going on. I mean, I think the fact that the S&P 500 is up 12 percent, the Nasdaq up about 8%. We have the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield at about 1.5%. Things feel pretty good, but take a look under the hood. There's a lot of cross currents. Yeah, I mean, things do feel pretty good. I think if we go back to the individual investor experience, and you guys, I'm sure, would agree with me, some of the experiences you have as an investor early on, or when I guess we call it when you cut your teeth, right? When you cut your teeth as an investor, the experiences you have early on really shape the way that you think about it going forward, whether you want it to or not. That's that's where you build your biases. And I think there are a lot of individual investors right now that are having a great experience. And I love that about what's going on in the market. I love that it's attracting people to the market and that people are more interested in it. What I think it's missing is an experience with risk. And you can talk about risk in a lot of different ways. You don't really experience risk until you lose money. And I think that there's a, a lot less losing money that's happened over the last 12 months than would regularly happen in a market. So there might be a little bit of a misconception that investing in individual securities is safe. I don't think it's safe. I think it's something that you can do in a prudent way, but you have to take the whole asset allocation account into the picture, right? You have to think about it holistically. As far as where we are right now in the economy, in the market, I think there is a big difference between this year and this cycle. Cycles have continued to get longer over time. We used to talk about a market cycle as three to five years. Now that seems like just a flash in the pan. I mean, a cycle can last up to 10 years. So this year, I do think we're okay. I think that we probably digest the inflation data 
just fine. And when I say just fine, maybe we have a few more five to 7% corrections, but I think the market digests it okay, because we won't know whether or not it's transitory. I, I hate to use that word again, but I have to. We won't know if it's transitory until probably later this year or early next year. So we're going to continue to get good economic data. We're going to continue to have a market that wants to go up. And there isn't a lot of other opportunity for people to invest other than equities. So I think we keep a floor under it from that perspective. Now, some of the things that I think are interesting to watch and some of the things that give me pause where occasionally I get too optimistic, I have to kind of check myself on that. And I'm I'm checking myself this week because of some of the hiring data that came out. But it's the the unfilled positions, especially for small businesses. I'm worried about that because I think it could put a lid on our growth potential if small businesses can't fill those seats. I'm also a little bit worried about, and we're trying to do some research on this, a little bit worried about the consumer engaging in revenge spending, meaning we're all so excited to get back out into the economy that we just go out and buy everything we can find. We buy tickets to every event that we can find. We go on all the trips we want. And then there's all this revenge and FOMO spending for the rest of 2021. How does that consumer find themselves in 2022? So Liz, some of the things you mentioned when you're a piece small but mighty, by the way, folks, you should read it. It was fascinating. You mentioned the job openings. And and one of the things that concerns me is the fact that there are these job openings and you know how to get people to go to back to work, you pay them more. And wage inflation, in my opinion, is the final piece to this inflationary puzzle. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that that is going to continue to happen. I mean, it's already happening, right? We're going to see wage inflation. Now, you can look at that a couple different ways. You can look at wage inflation and say, oh, it's a problem because it's just going to add to this already problematic inflationary picture. Or you can look at it and say, well, if people are making more money, they can absorb the inflation that is yet to come. And if companies have to start to pass through those inflationary costs to consumers, if the consumers have a higher income, we'll absorb it as an economy and we'll continue chugging along. I'm going to choose to look at it in the latter sense, that it's a positive and that for so long, we were looking for wage inflation. I mean, I remember before this crisis, right, we were talking about where's the wage inflation? Why has inflation not picked up? Why haven't wages gone up? And now they are. And suddenly people are upset about it. So I think it's a positive. I think that businesses are going to have to raise wages in order to attract the workers that they need. And I hope that we're able to thread that needle by the end of the year. So Liz, isn't it that wage inflation is really happening at the low end? So like you say, where we're pretty happy to see that. And if you think about a lot of big businesses, not the small businesses, but gross margins are at all time highs. So the ability to absorb that and pass that through to consumers whose balance sheets are in really good shape is also this is like a a Goldilocks scenario for the back end of all the monetary and fiscal stimulus. I guess my point is when I think about this and I think of all the cries, well, we're seeing inflation and lumber and and that's causing housing pricing to go up and we're seeing crude oil, you know, almost touching 70 and Guy will tell you that crude oil touches almost every consumer product, right, that, that is sold. I see it as transitory. As long as I've been in this business, every kind of mismatch that we've seen as far as supply, and I'm not an economist and I'm not a strategist, I'm just a dumb trader, but every single mismatch that we have seen in my 25-year career, we see a reversion to the mean. And then we look back and we say, ah, okay, and a guy is going to make fun of me, but I've been calling this the great transitory 
tantrum of 2021. I think we're going to look back and there's not been a tantrum in the markets. I mean, rates are fine. Stock market's fine. It's in the pundit class. It's in the economists and the strategists and the billionaire traders and the bank CEOs. They're the ones all over the Fed telling them that they're going to get it wrong. They're going to overstay their welcome. They're going to press too hard. We're going to have runaway structural inflation and create asset bubbles. And so I don't know. I'm just curious your take on that because and we'll follow up on this whole transitory tantrum, won't we, Guy Dami? We 100% will, Liz. And by the way, when he speaks about all the pundits, billionaire thing notwithstanding, because that ain't me, he's talking to me because I'm yeah. the one that gets on my, what do they call that? A soapbox? I don't even soap know if those things exist yeah. anymore. Something like I that. Think the Fed, I think I'll say it to you and you can say you, you're out of your mind. I'll say that central bankers will be proven to be the biggest villains of the 21st century, led by the geniuses at our Federal Reserve. Now, you can choose not to comment on that, and I would totally understand, but I find them their actions to be reprehensible, a word that I chose to use just there. Yeah, I'm going to not be as aggressive in my comments. <laughs> I think the Fed has a hard job. I do not envy Jerome Powell one bit. What I would say in response to Dan's comment Hindsight's 2020. It's always 2020, right? We're going to pull up charts in three or four years and we're going to say, oh, yeah, that that makes sense. That's where the problem was. But we don't know it when it's happening. We only know it after it's done. I do think that this Fed is going to err on the side of they'd rather be too late than too early. They're looking at the data and reacting to it rather than proactively trying to drive it. So I do think that there's a chance of that. Now, I would ask you back, though, Dan, if Uh if you think this is going to be transitory, inflation is going to be transitory. Does that mean that when it's over, it goes back to the low, the historically low levels it was at before? Yes. And I'll tell you why. Because before this black swan, before this pandemic, we were talking about the robots taking all the jobs, automation, globalization. We were contemplating what UBI, universal basic income, looks like. To me, I just don't believe that all these disruptions that we have seen as far as global supply chains and supply demand and migrations and everything, I just don't see them as permanent. And I think we go back to a place where rates are going to be structurally low forever. I mean, they're just like never really going up meaningfully. And if you think of the last time that we saw a little tantrum about rates going higher in Q4 2018, the stock market sold off guy. How much in a straight line there, buddy? 19.9% from October 2018 Uh, to middle of December. Christmas Eve, by the way, Dan Nathan. Thank (laughs) you. All right. Guy, way to lean a little too much in on that. But the point is, is that caused the Fed that was literally unwinding the crises policy for the global financial crisis, right? From nearly a decade earlier, unwinding that, and they have to do about face. So I don't think rates are ever going up. I think technology is this massive deflationary force that it was before COVID-19. And and I really do think we're going to get to a place where we're averaging, the Fed's going to be happy to get 2% inflation again. You know what I mean? Like, remember, they were kind of solving for that. And now they're worried about 3.5%. Yeah, well, but they also changed to the average targeting framework, right? And if you assume, I don't think they ever said exactly how long the average was, but let's assume it's two years. So even with that hot April print, and we're going to get a a new print, but by the time this is out, we'll have the May print. But even with that hot April print, we're only on an average of 1.65% in CPI, two-year average. So it's going to take us a while to get to the point where they feel like they need to do something about it. I agree with you in the sense that the the hot numbers are transitory, but I do think that we're going to start oscillating around a higher level 
even after that transitory period ends. I think that we'll get up there because if wage inflation comes in, people have more money to spend. And as we know, inflation doesn't happen unless the money moves around. So we'll pay people more, but then it has to move and that's what creates inflation. I think they will do that. And once wage inflation comes back in, you can't take it away. So even if the hot prints are transitory, you're not going to say, okay, we gave you a raise last year. You don't need it anymore because we don't need to pass this through anymore. So you, we're going to take your raise away. That's not going to happen. You may never take that raise away, raising some of those lower end workers, but you might actually start shrinking the pie of humans doing those jobs if you think about it that way. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about that, but if you think about every recession, you see the sort of productivity gains and the sort of efficiency gains by automation. You know, I mean, that's just the history of the last 50 years in the, you know, or the 100 years in the industrial age. So I just think it's really easy to think, and I'm not saying what you said is really easy, but what I'm saying is it's like, it's it's really easy to conceive of this new world order where the workers finally have the power. They had so little power prior to COVID-19. And now because they have a bunch of fiscal stimulus, a lot of people call them government transfer payments, they're really universal basic income that they are the ones sitting on the sidelines. They are the ones dictating to employers when they're willing to work and how much for. I just don't think that's going to stick for too long. Yeah, and it might not. And I think it's probably a longer term transition that we make as an economy because we're not going back to the heavy manufacturing piece of the economy, right? We're not going to rewind 20 years, 30 years and be driven more by manufacturing than by technology. I mean, I do think that technology continues to drive us and it's certainly something that keeps a headwind on inflation. But I don't think people become obsolete in that game. I think that people have to change their skill set. They have to probably morph demographically as, as we get older as a society into the jobs that matter and the ones that are going to resonate more with the consumers out there. So Liz, let's go back to you. You were talking earlier about risk and you were talking about some new investors never really seeing a market that goes down, only going one way. And you were talking about the difficulty of investing in, in single securities. So you're really talking about diversification. You're talking about funds. You're talking about ETFs. You're talking about having the proper amount of crypto in your portfolio, which is likely low single digits of the investable assets. One of the things that I find really interesting, though, is that there have been pockets of exuberant enthusiasm about different markets. Crypto is one of them. Crypto has now been cut in half in just a month and a half or so. We've seen a lot of SPACs and there's like 400 of them out there tracing hundreds and hundreds of deals that are on a clock, right? And we've seen a lot of those come in pretty significantly. We've seen tech IPOs, unprofitable companies that have gone public in the last year, year and a half or so down 30, 40, sometimes 50%. So the question I have for you is that we have all these new entrants to the market. A lot of them have thought of that's been it's been pretty easy, but it hasn't been that easy. Are we going to be in just another one of these scenarios where talk about biases? I came into the market in the late 90s, and I remember what a prolonged bear market looked like from the highs in 2000 to the lows in 02, 03. Are we ever going to have prolonged bear markets? And will these investors stick around here if some of this stuff never comes back? So I'm going to take the bear market question first. And actually, one of my favorite things to say in presentations, and we mentioned it already, is that December 2018 period, the market was down 19.8, 19.9%. We define a bear market as 20%. I don't think it was any mistake that we narrowly missed 
20% down. I think we got close to 20% and investors decided we don't deserve to be in a bear market. This is a buy signal. And I think that things like that continue to happen. That doesn't mean we won't ever have a bear market again. I think we absolutely will. And we're not supposed to use the word guarantee. What I can guarantee you is at some point we'll have another recession. Shortly thereafter, we'll have another recovery. That's just how this works. So there will be another bear market. But if it's a a correction, so less than 20% without a recession, that's usually a buying opportunity. Now, the fact that I think a lot of new investors haven't experienced that, and even if they did experience that last March, it was the fastest drop and the fastest bounce back that we've ever seen. So to them, an extended bear market is like seven days. To us, an extended bear market is seven months. So you have to look at what the experience is there. I think when we characterize the length of time, we're in a different world. And you can look at this a number of different ways. Monetary policy officials now know how to bail out the market. They used to know how to bail out the economy. Now they can bail out the market. And I think that investors expect them to do that. And they have this kind of new unspoken mandate about financial stability, which gives them the opportunity to bail out the market. You can also look at it by taking some economic data like GDP or inflation and just seeing how volatile those measures have been over time. They have become much less volatile in the last 30 years because policy officials started to really publish, this is what our target is, this is what we want it to look like. So now investors can predict what policy officials might do every time they have a meeting. So the volatility of economic data has come down. The expectation that policy officials are going to help the market if it becomes this terrible bear scenario, I think prevents us from having those prolonged bear markets going forward. Well, Liz, thanks for joining us. As we make this, the Brewers sit atop the National League Central, which I'm sure makes you happy beyond belief. Thanks for joining Dan and myself on the tape. Best of luck at SoFi. Hopefully we'll get you back soon. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.